Well, our sermon text, if you have a Bible in front of you, our sermon text is Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34, a short, short passage. It's the parable of the mustard seed. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we can get you one from the desk out there. Or it's also printed on the back side of your bulletin if you want to follow along there with the bulletin. Our custom is to stand for the reading of God's word, so I'll ask that you do that at this time. Give you to the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34. Mark writes, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. Let's pray this morning for the, as we go to the God's word that as the last part of that verse last verse says that he privately explained to his own disciples everything he said let us ask him to teach us as well Heavenly Father we ask that you would give us grace by your spirit even, even now as we come to your word that you would by your spirit explain to us what your word means that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your holy word for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, the parable of the mustard seed that we're looking at this morning, it's probably one of the more well-known of Christ's parables. It's also found in the other two synoptic gospels. You know, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They tell the same story from a similar perspective. It's why they're called synoptics. Uh, and this is no less than the third parable in this, in this one chapter, Mark 4, that deals in one way or another with the growth of seeds. You might have, might have already noticed that as you were reading. Um, it deals with all, all three of them in some way or another deal with the growth of seeds that are, that are planted. And in some ways, you could say it's the theme of the chapter. It's the theme of, of the whole chapter of Mark 4. Um, now, they deal with a similar subject matter, but each one of these parables teaches something different. Uh, but I think they teach something different in such a way as to be that each one complements the other. And it deals with a similar subject from a different angle. So it isn't telling the same thing, but it's telling something similar about something uh, that they all deal with. So uh, verses 1 through 20 maybe the most might, might be the most familiar parable to many of you, the parable of the sower. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And what does Jesus tell us about the seed sown of the word of God there. It's, uh, there he kind of explains to us why the word of God at times fails to bear fruit in the lives of those who hear it. Remember in, this, in the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, everyone that's, that's kind of uh, typified in that parable represents someone who hears the word. It's not dealing with people who don't hear the word. It's dealing with people. Everyone in that parable is someone who hears the word of God and then each type of soil represents the different re- responses and reactions uh, to it. Remember in that parable, only one of the four kinds of soil that represents four different kinds of people actually bore fruit from hearing the word. Only one, one type of person, so to speak, in that parable heard the word 
really understood it and bore fruit in that, in that parable. So there we learn that the word of God will sometimes fail to bear fruit unto salvation in those who hear it. Hearing the word of God is never enough. It's a good start. It's better than not hearing it in some ways, but hearing the word of God alone is not enough. It must be mixed with faith. Now that parable of the soils or the sower, I think, is often misunderstood in, in, in such a way as, to teach a, as teaching a pessimistic view of the work of the gospel on this earth, uh, the work of, of God's gospel on this earth. Now that, you know, it may ring true with your own experiences in evangelism and trying to tell your friends and neighbors and family members and loved ones about, about the gospel. Um, you know, sometimes we think, yeah, that, that fits my experience. You know, maybe not even one in four. You know, the, the math of the parable isn't really the point. We aren't supposed to say, well, share the gospel and one out of four people will believe. I, I would take those odds. I would gladly take those odds and walk down the street every day and hand out tracks more than I do and, and, and all of that. Um, and I think this parable helps us understand those who reject the word of God and who reject the gospel when it's shared uh, with them. But I, I don't think a pessimistic view of that parable does justice to the end of the parable, does it? It's easy to get caught up in the first three soils that don't bear fruit. And we, you know, maybe you read that parable and you think, that sounds like so-and-so. You know, The cares of the world have, have choked out the word and made it unfruit. Or, or this one, the rocky soil... That sounds like some, maybe it sounds like what I used to be myself, or it sounds like somebody I know who they hear the word, they kind of get excited about it for a short time, and then they kind of, you never hear from them again. Something happens, and they just walk away. Or maybe the hard soil, the soil by the path. You think, I know someone who like, who's like that. I, I tell them the word, and it, like, it bounces right off of them. It, doesn't, it just doesn't sink in at all. They don't get it. But the end of that parable, what does it say? It talks about a great harvest. It talks about a harvest, I think, that we sell short. It says that some of those who hear and bear fruit, they bear fruit, what does it say in verse 20? 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You don't normally get 30 and 60 on 100 from one seed. It's, it's a picture of an amazing harvest. And so that parable may seem pessimistic in some regard, but don't, don't, don't let it fool you. That's not what it's about. It's about a great Harvest. Uh, the second parable, verses 26 through 29, we looked at this last time, the parable of the growing seed. There, was, What does Jesus say about a growth, the growth of a seed? The word of God, what does he say there? It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit when it's sown, but it does so over time. Remember, the farmer plants the, soul, the seed, and he goes to bed and gets up, goes to bed and gets up, and it grows. He doesn't know how because he can't sit there watching it. You don't actually watch the plant grow like time-lapse photography, but yet it still grows, even if he doesn't know how it grows. Well, the Word of God is much like that. It does grow. It causes growth over time and sometimes imperceptibly if you're in a hurry. Uh, but Jesus there gives us a snapshot of, what, of the way the Word of God works by his grace in people's lives. Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11 assures us that the Word of God, what does it say, will never return to him empty or void. It always accomplishes the thing for which he sent it. It always accomplishes and succeeds in his purposes. So you and I should have confidence in the word of God and in the gospel of Christ. The word of God, as Hebrews 4.12 says, is living and active. It's not a static word on the page. It's just as living and active as it was in Genesis 1, 
where God said, what did he, how did God create? Let there be light, and what happened? There was light. His word is still powerful the same way today. Well, our parable, the parable of the mustard seed, verses 30 to 34, Jesus again talks about seeds growing, doesn't he? And this time he says the kingdom of God may be compared to a mustard seed. A mustard seed. Now, I've never planted a mustard plant. Maybe you've never seen or planted a mustard plant yourself. Uh, But mustard seeds were known for one thing, their size. Uh, And we can argue, sometimes unbelievers try to hem and haw and argue over, well, it's not literally the smallest seed on the whole earth. And they make that the cause of rejecting the scripture. I think that's a silly, that's a bad way to die, to cause, to put the, 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 the salvation of your own soul hanging on on something as flimsy as an argument like that to say, well, the word of God can't be trusted because, well, Jesus was no botanist and he didn't know that there's a tinier seed somewhere. The point isn't that it's the tiniest seed in all the universe. The point is that it's, it's in their day, in their place. It was the smallest seed. It was something of a proverb. When you, when you mention a mustard seed, to their ears, maybe to your ears as well, you think small, something very small. I've never seen one. I heard they're very, very hard to even see. If I held one in my hand, you probably couldn't see it even from the front, the front row. And a mustard seed, he says in verse 31, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. And that word earth is the same word that we get ground from. So he may not be making such a, a wide-ranging uh, comparison there. But, but what happens to that mustard seed? It grows very large, so that, what does it say in verse 32? The birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Make nests in its shade. So big things can come from small beginnings, and that's especially true when it comes to the kingdom of God. Especially with the kingdom of God. J.C. Ryle uh, writes of this parable, he says, It seems intended to illustrate the history of Christ's visible church on earth from the time of the first advent, the first coming of Christ, to the judgment day. So it's, it's, it's to tell the picture of the history of the work of the gospel, right? The seed cast into the earth in the preceding parable showed us the work of grace in a heart. The mustard seed shows us the progress of professing Christianity in the world. I think that's a good way to summarize the difference between those, these last two parables. The parable of the growing seed in the verses prior to this deals with the work of the gospel in the heart of an individual person. How God works in your life and mine from the first day you believe until he calls us home. The parable that we're looking at now, the mustard seed, kind of pans back and gives us the big picture. It's not just the the zooming in on one person. It's here's the work of God's gospel in all of history. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And if we're, we're, you know, sometimes we get... uh, What's the, what's the word myopic? You know, we, we can't see past the nose on our face. We can't see past the moment. But when you can't see the big picture of things, it's very easy to get discouraged and to, see the, to make it think like, you know, God really isn't doing much through his word. But when you pan back and look at the big picture, I think we're going to see from our text and others as well that God is doing some amazing things and has done some amazing things. And his kingdom really is like that mustard seed. It didn't look like much at the beginning, but its growth has been spectacular, in, in, to say the least. Well, we're going to look at three things from our text. The outline is also printed on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along with that, if that helps you at all. But three main points. First, the kingdom of God. It's always helpful to, to define your terms, and sometimes we fail to do that. We'll try to do that here this morning. The kingdom of God. Secondly, the smallest 
of seeds, and third, the largest of plants. So first, the kingdom of God. The first thing we see here that Jesus mentions is the kingdom of God. Look again at the way that Jesus introduces the parable in the first place. In verse 30, what does he say the main subject of the parable is? What's the parable about? He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? So what's the parable about? The kingdom of God. There. Easy. Now we'll go to the next point, right? Um, No, you know, it's it's easy. I I can say this for myself. Maybe you are thinking the same way. When I first started studying this parable, even for the sermon, I practically overlooked it. It's like I assume I know what that means and get right to the parable itself. Let's talk about seeds and the seeds growing into this big shrub and birds nesting in its branches and things like that. You know, sometimes when you read a phrase like that in the Bible and you forget to kind of think about or define what the term is referring to and what he's actually talking about. Or sometimes, uh, I know I do this, I sort of assume I already know what that means. But if you were to ask me, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I'd have a hard time defining it for you. Well, um, So what is the kingdom of God here in the parable? What is Christ talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God? You know, Many diff- different definitions have been offered over the years by many commentators. Many different conceptions might come to your minds as you're hearing that word and reading that phrase mentioned. And, and frankly, the Bible uses that same phrase in a multitude of ways. So you really have to look at the context in, in particular uh, at all times. And thinking about one instance in, in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a well-known timely passage as ever, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Listen how the Apostle Paul uses the same exact phrase. He says there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same phrase. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, quite a list, will inherit the kingdom of God. There it is again. He's saying there are some people who will inherit it and some who will not. And he says, and such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I almost want to preach that passage all by itself. But think about that. There's there's great news there. Kind of shocking news there in, in a lot of ways. There are certain people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the list is much broader than we might have usually expected. We tend to, to define it more narrowly, and, and usually we, we, we define it by the sins that we don't think that we do. right? If we haven't committed one of these, well, those are the bad ones. But what does he say? Such were some of you. We should expect in, in, a, in, a, in a healthy church all of those sins to be able to have been said of us, of people sitting next to us in the pews. Uh, not, not present tense, but that God saves all kinds of sinners. The worst of the worst, he saves all kinds. Such were some of you. You can imagine the Corinthians maybe looking around at each other when, when whoever was reading the letter was reading it and going, yep, yep, that was me, that was you, that was you, that was me. God's good. And what does it say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what's the implication? We shouldn't inherit the kingdom of God. 
But by faith in Christ, by his grace and the work of his spirit, you do. And that's the only way that you do. So what is, how does Paul use the phrase there, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of, of God? Um, I, I kind of take it as a, a synonym for heaven. More or less, you're going to heaven. You're going to be with the Lord. That's kind of how my mind interprets it. I think that's mainly what he's saying. There's probably more to it than that, but that's the basic idea. Um, you know, in one sense, you could say that we could just keep the term very simple, very, very general, very literal. What does the kingdom of God mean? It's God's kingdom. Well, what is God's kingdom? What's the scope or extent of his kingdom? It's, it's the scope or extent of, of the, the domain of his rule. Over what is God ruling? The better question, the easier question would be, what isn't God ruling over? Nothing. There's nothing that God is not even now ruling, entirely ruling over. God rules over all things. He rules over all people. He rules over all angelic beings. And he does so at all times. There is nothing outside of the scope of God's command and reign. Nothing in all the created universe is outside of God's dominion. And that's the same dominion that's been given to Jesus Christ, his son, and our Lord. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, what does Jesus say? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth, the entire cosmos, both visible and invisible, is under the reign and scepter of Jesus now. Not later, as some would have you believe. There are some whose view of eschatology is kind of warped, and they teach that Christ's reign is is future. There is a future part of his reign where all things will be manifested to be under his feet. But they're under his feet now. We just don't see it. And that's the, the proper thing. Jesus is reigning and actively reigning right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that's the only reason the Great Commission makes any sense. It's the only reason there's any hope of it succeeding. is because he is reigning right now. How much authority? All authority. What's the extent or the bounds of that authority? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. He's not just the king, but what does Revelation call him? The king of kings. The king of kings and lord of lords. But I don't think that's the primary thing that Jesus is talking about here in this parable. You know, it might be related to it in some way, but it's not the main thing. Here he's talking about in our parable the manifestation of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom of his Christ. And how is that kingdom primarily achieved or exhibited through his church in the world and through his gospel working through his church. So I hope that's at least helpful to somewhat uh, give you a snapshot of what that's talking about. The second thing in our text is the smallest of seeds. Verse 31, Jesus says, it, the kingdom of God, is like a grain of mustard seed. Even the word grain makes you think about how small it must have looked. When sown in the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. So the kingdom of God, the, the manifestation of the rule of Jesus Christ on this earth, is in some way like a mustard seed. Perhaps the main thing that a mustard seed again was known for was what? It's extremely small 
size. So, you know, again, it's, it's a figure of speech for anything that's small. You might know that Jesus used it elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew 17:20. he says this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, it's a pretty big contrast, grain of seed and a mountain, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now that, that's a text that has been twisted around by some in the word faith movement that we can name and claim whatever we want. That's not what Jesus is saying. You, you won't find a verse where one of the apostles said, well, Jesus said it. Hey, mountain. You, know, you won't find that. It's not the point of what he's saying. But what is he saying? He's saying that even the smallest of faith, maybe you think to yourself very often, my faith is not very strong. Well, Jesus says, guess what? I have good news. The smallest of faith, even like a mustard seed, if it's true and sincere faith, can yield great things from the Lord. Can yield great things from the Lord. So you kids here, the children, the young ones here this morning, remember it's not the size or strength of your faith that's the important thing, although you want your faith to grow. Uh, It's been said many times by people much smarter than myself that even the weakest of faith, if it's true and sincere, lays upon lays a hold upon a strong and omnipotent Christ. It's, it's not the faith, it's, it's the object of that faith, the one that faith is in. So, so trust in God. Take him at his word at all times and in all things about which his word tells you things about. And what does that mean? It means you have to read his word. It means that you have to read his word. What does Romans 10.17 say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you, you young ones and old ones and older ones, not old ones, uh, you know, read your Bibles. If you want your faith to grow, there's one primary way to do it. Get in God's word. Read his word. Study it. Memorize it. Take him at his word when you, for what you read and trust him in whatever he says. Well, here in this parable, you and I are taught that in some way the kingdom of God and of his Christ would have a small begin, a very small beginning, a very minuscule, insignificant-looking beginning. Well, how can the kingdom of Christ be said to have had a small beginning? If you think about it, uh, is not the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's Mark 1.1, the first verse of the book, uh, was it not small? Was it not somewhat insignificant? Is it not... Uh, the smallness of it, is it not in the humble birth of Christ? Where was Christ born? In a stable. It wasn't big news. Her- you know, well, Herod had to try to hunt it down to figure out where it was. Uh, they didn- nobody went right to a stable, even when they figured out where it was supposed to be. Uh, he wasn't born in a palace. He's the king. Remember, they, they worshipped when they found him. Uh, but he wasn't born in a palace like we thought maybe he should have been. Uh, is, is it not found that it's small in the way that he went about building his kingdom? How does Christ build his kingdom primarily? Through an army? Yes and no. Through the preaching of his word, that's correct. Through preaching. No disrespect intended, but humanly speaking, that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. How, how do you build a kingdom through, through dumb people like me preaching the Bible? It seems foolish. It's not going to make the headlines in the paper. It's no, no, one, no one outside of Christ hears about that and says, Wow, I've got to go check that out. That's amazing. Uh, but that's how Christ works. That's how Christ builds 
his church through preaching. He conquers, not through an army, but through preaching and through his own suffering. Think about the people that he chose originally to build his church. The 12 men, minus Judas, um, 11 and then plus Paul and Matthias. But think about the kinds of men he picked. We wouldn't have picked them. We would have picked the important people. We're constantly, I do the same thing too. You think you find out a famous person is, is professing to be a Christian, and what do you say? Oh, look, you know, so-and-so, the famous person. They're a Christian, so it must be cool. You know, and, you know, I, I get that. I've done it myself. Oh, famous millionaire athlete, he's a Christian. Oh, you know, see, it's okay. You know, it, it's, it's okay to be a Christian. No, he picked uneducated fishermen, many of them. Tax collectors. One of them, you know, you could say one of them was a doctor, but uh, he wasn't an apostle. But, you know, the, mainly the kinds of people he chose to use weren't anything in the eyes of, of the world. You might know in Acts 4.13 that the, the religious authorities of the day, they referred to the, the apostles of Christ as uneducated common men. There was nothing special about them except one thing. What does it say? They knew they had been with Jesus. The only explanation for them was that they had been with Christ. And yet those were the men that the gospel, that God used to spread his gospel throughout the entire ancient world without the use of airplanes and the internet and all kinds of those things that we take for granted in our day. Twelve uneducated common men spread the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome within a very short time period after Christ's resurrection. Now, and this is important to note that the idea of the kingdom, you know, when, when you were one of his original hearers, if you were there and you heard kingdom of God, you would have closely related that to the kingdom of the Messiah, the son of David. That would have had bells going off in your head when you, when you read that. And how would you have expected the son of David, who was that's one of Christ's titles, how would you maybe have expected him to come? Maybe with an army. Maybe with great power and might and glory. Maybe great pomp and circumstance. You would have expected him to conquer through might and through glory and through a military, perhaps. You know, you think about even before Christ was delivered over to be crucified under Pontius Pilate, what did Pilate himself ask Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Mark 15, 2. Now, why did he ask that? This is a good, I mean, it's, it's almost obvious why he asked it. He didn't look like a king. You know, Pilate is looking at him and, and this guy, this guy's the king of the Jews? You know, I, look at me, I'm, I'm ruling over a king. I get to judge the fate of a king. He didn't look like much of a king. The only crown he had that we know of was a crown of what? Thorns on the cross. He didn't walk around with an army surrounding him. You know, Peter tried to be one, but he told him to put away his sword. Right? He wasn't looking for that kind of an army. He didn't have an earthly army. He had a heavenly army that he could have used at a moment's notice, didn't he? He told Peter to sheath his sword. When Remember, Peter took a sling and cut off somebody's ear and wasn't aiming for the ear. It says in Matthew 26, 53 and 54, he tells Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He had to die or we're all still in our sins. He conquered through his death. And it wasn't because he couldn't defend himself. And it wasn't because he didn't have an army at his disposal. 
I dare say 12 legions of angels would do some serious damage if you know your Old Testament. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ came in humility. Philippians says he came in the form of a servant. Philippians 2.7 He came not to save his people from Rome, but to save us from our greatest enemy of all. That's our sins. He came not to kill for us. He came to die for us, to suffer and die on the cross in our place for our sins. We all get the idea wrong of what the kingdom is supposed to be in this life. And when you have the wrong idea, it looks like it's not doing much, doesn't it? It was in his death that you and I see the fulfillment of that very first promise of the gospel found in the Bible. Way back in Genesis 3.15. There the Lord is pronouncing his curse upon the serpent. And what does he say? He says, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, strife, uh, between you and the woman, between the serpent and Eve. And between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring. And then he says, he, not they, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It, it sounds like it suddenly goes from plural to singular. We think offspring, and that there's some truth to that. But it's all about one offspring, one seed, and that seed is Christ. And what does it say? He bruises the head, or crushes the head, of the serpent while the serpent's striking his heel. What's it, what's it a picture of? It's a picture of the cross, isn't it? Remember Golgotha, where the, where the cross was. Well, what's, what does Golgotha mean? The place of the skull. It's like God's pointing it out to us, even in the location. This is where the, the serpent's head's being crushed, the place of the skull. The serpent bruised the heel of Christ, thought he had won the victory over him, but on the cross... Through his own death for our sins, Jesus there crushed the head of the serpent and destroyed, as Hebrews says, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus' victory was in his own death and resurrection. Well, the third thing in our text, that that small seed turns into the largest of, of plants. In verse 32, he says, Jesus says, Yet when it is sown or planted, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now you've, you've probably said this before or heard this before. You know, what do they say about books? Don't judge a book by its cover. It's a similar idea. You know, don't judge a plant by the size of the seed that you, that you plant. We have a similar kind of saying in English. In our day, we say that the, the oak tree is in the acorn, or the, acorn, the, the oak is in the acorn. Uh, now, an acorn is a lot bigger than a mustard seed. Maybe that's why Jesus didn't, didn't use it. Uh, you know, but if you didn't know better, if you didn't know what an acorn was, maybe when you were a kid, if someone had looked at you and said, hey, you know, hey, see this little thing? That's going to become this humongous tree. You'd have been like, what? How is that even possible? That doesn't happen. But yet that's exactly what, what happens. You'd never dream that a mighty oak tree would come from a little tiny seed with a little hat on top of it, right? Uh, you know, the beginnings of the gospel appear, appeared small and unimpressive from a worldly point of view. But it would grow, and it's still growing today, into an unimaginable size and power. The gospel is growing spectacularly, and it still is. And how do you know that? You have to look back on history. You have to know your history for more reasons than one. Looking back on history since Christ's first advent, we can see the truth of this parable demonstrated in, in dramatic fashion, if you have the eyes to see it. You know, it's easy for me, maybe it is for you, to get discouraged at times. And you think, boy, it doesn't seem like something big is happening. 
you know, that we, we, we think God's, the wheels of God's work sometimes grind slow, just like the wheels of his justice at times. You and I can be tempted to think that God isn't doing much, or that the gospel isn't bearing much fruit. You know, I'm sharing the gospel with people and nothing's happening. They, they're not come, I'm inviting them to church, they're not coming to church, uh, they're, not, they're not coming to faith in Christ, possibly. You know, and, and in those times, I think you and I need these three parables in Mark chapter 4. And we need to look at them with fresh eyes. There the Lord assures us his word will bear fruit unto a great harvest, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. There the Lord assures us that his word will be at work in the lives of his people, just like that seed bearing, you know, growing and sprouting, and the farmer doesn't know how it does, but it just does, over time, imperceptibly over time, until the time of the harvest. And there Jesus Christ assures us, not just that his seed of his word will bear fruit, but that he will conquer the world through his gospel. The cosmos, really. His, his gospel is going to conquer everything and put everything under his feet. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ will not fail. We sometimes think it's failing. It's not failing, and it will not fail. The Great Commission is not an exercise in futility. Jesus isn't giving us a job and basically telling you, go bang your head against the wall. Go out and make disciples. Good luck. It's not going to work. I'll watch over you. You know, I'll, I'll laugh. I'll have oh, what they're trying. No. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What's he saying? He even says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's saying, disciples are going to be made. Uh, why? Not because of us because Christ is at work building his church and building his kingdom. The Great Commission is not an exercise in futility. It's a virtual certainty. And if you look at history, you'll see that it is and has been just that. The, in the promise given to Abraham, way back in the, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 15, 5, the Lord told Abraham something. He said, look toward heaven. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He didn't say, hey, you're going to have 12 kids, or you're going to have 30 kids. He's an old man. Past, him and his wife were well past the age of, of childbearing. But he wasn't talking about a physical seed, was he? What's the fulfillment of Genesis 15:5? The church. The redeemed, believers in the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. All the way back in Genesis, God promised through his gospel, there would be an uncountable number of people saved, redeemed, and sanctified through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and where do you see that, that, that promise finally fulfilled? I'll give you a hint. Go the other way in your Bible. Genesis, first, chat, first book, Revelation 7-9. We read this also last week. What does it describe the future of all believers looking like? It says there is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's, that's the parable of the mustard seed. Come to fruition. Come, come to its final result. The Father's promise to his Son in Psalm 2, that was our call to worship, will not go unfulfilled. He will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He's not exaggerating. 
The gospel will go through all the earth and he will have a people that no one but God could possibly number. He's doing that even now through his church, through, even through us, as small as we are, in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you give us so many things in your scriptures to encourage us in the work. Uh, we ask, as, as has been prayed many times and is found in your word, that, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Give us grace to see the harvest is great. Give us grace to not, not be like Moses in, in the sense of saying that we're, we're not good at speaking. Uh, help us to know, like you told Moses, that you'll be with our mouth. And who made our mouth? That it's your word where the power lies. That, that you work through your word powerfully uh, by your spirit. And you bring life from the dead. And you change all things. And even now you're transforming all things. We thank you for the, the progress of the gospel throughout the world. And we ask that you might be uh, be pleased to give us grace to, to, to have the faith to see and the eyes to see uh, what you're doing in the world and what you have done throughout these last even 2,000 years. And we ask that you might be pleased to use us in the spread of your gospel, that we might see you at work through the omnipotent power of Almighty God in the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, for the Jew and also for the Greek, which is only found in the gospel of your Son. Give us grace to be farmers planting and watering seeds and watching you at work and giving you all the praise for the salvation of sinners. May you save many, many people here, even in Ramona, our neighbors and family and friends, that we might glorify you and that they might live the rest of their days to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ who has died and risen again for their salvation. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.